Chris, do I have you? Hey, you there? Yeah. What's going on, man? Hey, man. What's going on? Not too much. It's a it's a, a dreary Wednesday here in Brooklyn. How about you? Still, it's bright and sunshine here in Cleveland. Finally, after two days of rain. There you go, man. I uh, I brought you on today because I really want to talk to you about Cleveland's veteran minicamp to have upcoming this week. Yes, yes, let's go, Keelan Martin, Armani Brooks. Is there is their roster? Do they have like a back spot open? Is that is that what it is? So technically, they do have a back spot open. Um, so any of these guys could claim the fifteenth spot, or they could just be invited to training camp and see if they can play their way on that way. Yeah, it's been interesting. I feel like across the league, there's been a couple of teams that have wanted to keep. Um, uh, that have wanted to keep a spot open for various reasons. Um, hold on one second. Um, and I don't know. I mean, Cleveland, to really jump into it, I mean, Cleveland's Cleveland's been one of those teams now, man, where we saw it last summer with Larry Marketing, and, you know, they stepped in to the James Harden trade. Um, with uh, with Houston and Brooklyn and stole Jared Allen, and now they yep. flew into Diamond Mitchell. Yep. And you know th- th- their front office said that's. I I really think this time I started off last week's show, like the NBA has become as much of a sport in the front office world, um, and, and you know who won the trade, executives' records is it, just as scrutinized and celebrated as players on court abilities and successes. Um, and like, I don't know, you're, you're, you're probably a little biased. I, I'm just going to throw that out there. And you're probably very, very close to it, you know, way closer than me. But you kind of have to think that Kobe Altman's front office has really vaulted the the high, the higher, the hierarchy, the power rankings of you yeah. know, most active, most, you know, you know, Miami gets mentioned, you know, with Pat Riley and Andy Ellsberg and Masai. And, you know, you have those those top right. tier executives, if you will, that, you know, when Minnesota, for example, when, when, when Mark Laurie and A-Rod, you know, came into control of the team, let's say. There's some other questions about uh, their eventual ownership and totality, but we'll, that's a whole other podcast. Um, you know, yeah. they wanted to get top five executives like Masai and, you know, Daryl right. Morin and they end up going with Tim Connolly. Like, Colby Altman's got to start being wedged into that, that chatter as well, I, I would think. I agree. So, like, I've been a defender of Kobe for a long time, like, in Cleveland for a while. You know, people were judging him based on the win-loss record, right? Because that's what sports is, bottom line business or whatever. And I was just like, hold on, don't judge the final product. Not yet, because obviously this is a process, this is a rebuild, and it's about the individual moves independent of the win-loss record. And I think if you just look at those, you could see like a lot of successes, like a lot of good things that he was doing. Um, And I think to your point, Jake, like part of the reason why they elevated Kobe to president and they made Mike Gansey general manager 
is because like some of their guys were getting poached because they didn't have spots to go internally. You know what I mean? And like that allowed them to create these new job titles so that guys didn't have to leave to get the promotions and the 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 new money that they would want to get from the Cavs. You know what I mean? Yeah, and there was I mean, I'll say this now because I think I think statute limitations have passed and everyone's in a good spot. And it's relevant to the Don Mitchell conversation. Um, you know, when Brock Aller left to join New York, it was part of that conversation, right? And also yep. there That's was right. even there were even whispers all along, you know, Dan Gilbert's tenure until Kobe Altman, he, he pretty much ran through executives after three years, right? They would have one deal and then wouldn't figure out the rest. And, you know, when, when David Griffin's tenure came up there in Cleveland, like it was pretty much a foregone conclusion. He wasn't coming back. Um, so yeah. there was all this speculation out there behind the scenes that Brock Oliver was going to come home, if you will, and like take over things. And that president title was open over Kobe and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that, that talk has definitely dissipated. Right. I mean, especially once those, right. once those promotions got dished out, but it is interesting how there kind of has always been like a bit of a basketball operations game of Thrones. And I mean, the Cavs are not, you know, the Lakers. I mean, I'm, I'm very excited for the good people of Northeast Ohio and the good people, that organization that they've got a, a pretty fun window here with a young core. Um, but I mean, it's, you don't see this type of like palace intrigue in, uh, and it's not to say there really has been, like it hasn't mm-hmm. been a thing where there's been Jeannie Bus versus Jim Bus on, on the in the tabloids and you know, talking about. I mean, right now the whole Gerson Rosas negotiating the deal for New York is a very big storyline out of um, Manhattan right. right now. But just the fact that the Cavs GM job has been a buzzworthy topic for more than a decade is kind of interesting. Now that I think about it. Yeah, it's also interesting from this standpoint because to your point, Jake, like. It seemed like for a while, Dan Gilbert didn't value that position. He felt like I could just bring somebody else in there that can do the same thing that David Griffin did or whoever it is, Chris Grant. You put the name attached to it. So when the contract ended, he was looking at it saying, "Okay, like it doesn't matter all that much in the grand scheme of things. And I think now you're seeing in the NBA, just like you said, these positions are really, really meaningful, especially for teams that are trying to construct a rebuild, that are trying to build it organically, trying to go through the draft as opposed to just like making these wild free agency signings. So it seems like there has been a shift, not just in the NBA, but with Dan Gilbert as well, putting a little bit more respect on on what executives mean to the success of a franchise. It's, it's a lot, it's a lot, but I think, you know, the number one theme that gets repeated to me is that successful franchises start at the ownership level Mm. and a lot of it is really just willingness to spend, which these are all just a bunch of rich guys. Pretty much the fact that willingness to spend is like a skill or, 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 you know, an asset or a valuable trait, just like speed and quickness and shooting ability on the court. Seems kind of yeah. silly, right? Um, right. Just like you would think every NBA player would be able to shoot. 
Like, that's just not the case. And Dan Gilbert's always mentioned this as someone who, I mean, when 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 the time is now, when when there is a team that's worthy to fit the to foot the bill for, they did he does it and flushed mm-hmm. out a really expansive analytics team and database and front office staff during the Griffin tenure. So when when I got to shit this to Donovan, like when I got early rumblings of the Cleveland stuff. I wasn't surprised they were they were poking around because I also thought mm. that if they were to pull that off, like New Orleans, for example, has never once paid the luxury tax from from my understanding, and that would have been just impossible if, if if they went and traded for Kevin Durant. So like, I don't I don't know truthfully because you know I don't think enough time has passed to really get enough true serum on both sides and, and talk to them. I don't know how um, legitimately uh, New Orleans was involved in the Kevin Durant stuff, but I never mm-hmm. I never took it very seriously because people in the know were telling me, like, they're not going to pay the tax if they got Kevin Durant anyway. So, like, that kind of eliminates yeah. them from happening altogether. When Cleveland popped up as a Donovan threat, I, I still thought, I mean, everyone in the league, everyone in the league thought that it was New York or bust and he was going to uh, – right. He was going to um, become a Nick, but I mean, the Cavs just—they made sense, but I didn't take them seriously. Like, like, did you? <laughs> I took them seriously from the standpoint of they made sense. It was logical, and oftentimes when it comes down to this, Jake, I just try and follow the logic. And they were set up to take a player like Donovan Mitchell, right? They won 44 games last season. They advanced to the play-in tournament. And they were clearly an organization that was looking to take the next step. And they had a young core that they were building around Darius Garland, Evan Mobley, and Jared Allen. So bringing somebody like Donovan obviously would raise their ceiling. And they were involved in DeJounte Murray. So it was clear that the Cavs felt like there were two paths this offseason to improve on what they accomplished last year. They could basically run it back, say that we've got unfinished business. Um, Colin Sexton's going to be healthy. We're bringing back Ricky Rubio. And we're going to have internal development from Evan Mobley and Isaac Okoro. And we drafted Ochai Abaji. And that was one path that they could have taken. The other one was, you know, go outside the organization and, and find somebody that could change the, the, the trajectory of this rebuild. Um, and it was clear that they were at least somewhat interested in that. And I think they had enough young appealing pieces and enough assets in terms of draft capital into the future that if they wanted to seriously get involved and they thought the right player was out there for them to acquire, that they made sense. Um, But here's the thing, like, I never thought, Jake, that the Cavs, number one, could get a deal done for Donovan Mitchell without parting with one of their three core players, Darius, Jarrett, or Evan. And the other thing, I didn't think that at the end of the day, they were going to be able to have the winning bid over a team like New York that was stacked with assets that seemed, at least from the outside, seemed to have a little bit more motivation and a little bit more, quote-unquote, desperation to get something done and meet Utah's high asking price. So that, to me, 
those two factors were the most surprising aspect of it. But the the idea that the Cavs were involved in Donovan Mitchell um, and were talking to the Jazz, that wasn't surprising to me. Cleveland and Memphis, from, from my vantage point, I've kind of viewed them as a lot. I mean, you and I were texting, you joked, you know, that we can't call this a rebuild anymore. Like they've kind yeah. of been on the same trajectory, um, not necessarily by design. Like they just happen to work at the same time. Um, and I mean, Garland and Morant, I believe, are from of the same draft. If I if I have that right, so they like, are. Yep. Makes, it kind of it kind of makes some sense that they're yep. following a similar path. But they also, you know, both had their big man pairing first come and Jared Allen, and then you know Jared Jackson um, was there before him even. Um, and then the third member, Desmond Bain, Evan Mobley, you know, not, not exactly the same, but they have these big young threes and they're building right. together. And both sides were kind of being pretty patient, right? Like Memphis did. Mm-hmm. Memphis has done some deals around the edges, but like I think, you know, the Grizzlies ha- had been repeatedly mentioned to me before the deadline throughout the summer as a team to watch. Memphis has picks. Mm-hmm. They've got young players. This is their last offseason right. before all these contracts come on to the books. I'm like, look out for Memphis, everybody. And then yeah. people who knew Memphis, people who have worked with Zach Kleiman, um, high up Grizzlies people had all been adamant to me, like, no, we're not going to just push our chips into the table and go make a splash right now because, um, you know, we value our continuity. We value what we're building here. I mean, even right. the fact that they were having talks about DeAnthony Melton and Brandon Clark and others before the draft, like, they didn't even want that to get out there. Like they're very protective mm-hmm. of, of building this core, and they don't want to do anything to jeopardize it. Versus Cleveland has kind of been, like I said at the top, like they didn't push in the envelope. I mean, even to get Jared Allen was a was a stealthy move. And honestly, right. like you could have objectively considered the Karis Levert trade at the deadline as a bit of an overpay, right? And now, especially mm-hmm. being like now he's in post Donovan trade, like that's to me. We can get to this. Maybe I'm skipping ahead of the agenda, so let's put a bookmark in that before we really expound on that topic. Or no, let's just go with it. Why not? We're a free we're a free flowing <laughs> conversation here. Like to All me, right. post Donovan to me, post Donovan, whether or not I mean Karis is, is extension eligible, that was one of the bigger Cleveland co- questions coming into this offseason. Yep. Now now that's something that, you know, I don't necessarily I haven't asked anyone with Cleveland this conversation since the, the deal went down or this question since uh-huh. the deal went down. But I mean it's certainly come up with people I've talked to around the league like now that went from you know potential top button like top of the agenda uh, nugget for Cleveland to address, and now that might be like an afterthought. It might be something that okay, yep. you hold your cards to your vest as a front office and wait and see how this fits. And does Karras come off the bench? Does he become that right. uh, that that fifth starter? That that to me the Karras Levert X factor of it all, both on the court and on Cleveland's cap sheet, to me. Is probably one of the more interesting team building wrinkles in the league right now. Yeah, and I, I get the sense, Jake, that they're not in any rush to do anything. Um, I think the Cavs want to see how this plays out. What kind of role is he going to have? How is he going to fit? And it's a little bit of different conversation, right? Because if we would have been having this conversation about three weeks ago, the Cavs were staring into the future of 2023 and they were staring at the possibility of both of their two guards, Colin Sexton and Karis Levert, being unrestricted free agents in the summer of 23 and eventually leaving them 
and not really having the means or the assets to replace them. Now with Donovan here, he is no doubt the starting shooting guard on this team. He is going to be a high usage player. He's going to be a playmaker and a shot creator. And he's under team control for the next three years. So there's just not a lot of pressure and not a lot of urgency to get something done with Karis LeVert. And I think we talked about this last time on the podcast, Jake. Like to me, and this is just me thinking out loud, contract extensions have to be earned. And while Karis has accomplished a lot of good things throughout the course of his career in Brooklyn and in Indiana, he didn't live up to it for the Cavs. The Cavs were disappointed about what they got from Karis over the final two months of the regular season after trading for him at the deadline and giving up what they gave up in order to get him. Now, there were a lot of circumstances tied to why he struggled with the Cavs. And I think the Cavs recognize him. I think Karis recognizes them. And sometimes people say, oh, you're making excuses, blah, 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 blah. It's like an explanation for why he didn't perform up to the standard that they expected after they traded for him. There were injuries that he was dealing with. There was a lack of comfort within the new offense, new teammates. His pick and roll partner was supposed to be Jared Allen. And he got injured shortly after, you know, Karis LeVert was able to come back from his foot injury. And like the starting five that they were looking forward to seeing all season long. Chris, you still there? Damn, Chris, if, if you're still there, I, I can't hear you. Um, um, oh, you're back. You're back. I got you. Yeah. Are you there? Did I lose you? Yes, I got you. Yeah. Oh, so, you're back now. Sorry about that. Um, so, like, all of those factors combined, plus the fact that the Cavs believe Karis is going to want more than um, what they're willing to pay him, and this idea that if he stays on an expiring contract, it's more beneficial to the Cavs from a trade value standpoint. Uh, I don't see a contract extension happening between the two sides, unless it's a really, really Cavs friendly one. And I don't think that's going to be obviously what he's looking for. Right. Um, right. Right. I, I mean, right now, if you're a sixth man type player in the league, like, you're basically looking for 20 or bust. 20 is a different number. There's kind of like a middle class <laughs> in the NBA right now. And yes. um, you're either in that middle class or if you're not, if you're above that, like 20 is where things start. So, I mean, I, I was talking to a, a person who was with Brooklyn um, while Karras was there, let's say, mm-hmm. um, in, in, the, in the aftermath when my, when my, my dustpan was out. We were we were sifting through uh, the rubble of the Donovan trade, and he said, yeah. "You know, everyone loved Garris. Great score off the bench. Great person. Yes. Really high character yep. locker room guy. Someone that was that was a big element of of the Nets foundation, built, building that thing up to a point where where Durant and Kyrie wanted to to, to sign there in free agency. Um, mm-hmm. He was someone that those guys were excited to play with. But all that being said." not worth the number that he's at right now, let right. alone 
higher number that he's going to want. Um, is that is it eighteen million? Correct. Yeah, eighteen point seven this year. Yep. So you would think with the cap going up at twenty twenty five, uh, or in twenty twenty five, and everyone you know expecting massive, massive new TV money, um, to really you know spike up the cap and increase you know salaries across the board. I, I'm, I mean, I would, I would, I mean, Colin Sexton wanted twenty. Yeah, after right. not playing for a whole season and, and got eighteen, so I mean, that's a whole other conversation that we definitely, I definitely want to get into. Um, but I mean, just it seems highly unlikely that Levert's going to be, like you said, going to be locking into a Cavs-friendly number. And yeah. Cavs-friendly would also probably be something like, you know, longer term with team options in it or, or partial guarantees mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Which I mean, no player is really. Accepting those, you know, you know, those frameworks in extension stuff. So it it does seem pretty unlikely to me too. And there are differences between Karras and Colin stylistically, and and um, just in terms of overall value, I think as well. Uh, Karras is 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 taller. He's longer. He's more of a defender. At least the belief is that he's more of a defender. Um, he brings more positional versatility, which is more appealing to a coach that's putting together a starting five or a rotation. But like if the Cavs weren't willing to go, you know, to that number for Colin Sexton, uh, somebody that they knew really, really well, somebody who was part of the culture turnaround, somebody that was really, really liked by people inside the organization. He had a lot of fans in the organization. Um, I just find it hard to believe that the Cavs would approach anything close to that number for somebody like Karras. So let's get back to the, the big blockbuster that, that, that put this, convers- this this question on the table. Um, yep. I mean, New York comes and gives the deadline of Monday night. They sign R.J. Mm-hmm. Barrett to this four-year $120 million deal, which that's a big – I talked about this last week as well. I mean, that is a – a huge, huge wrinkle, I think, in these conversations being that Colin Sexton at 472 and R.J. Barrett at 4120 are vastly different, you know, assets, for lack of a better term, in the NBA marketplace. And you add into the fact that when we talked about this when you first came on the show, I mean, Utah was definitely interested in Colin Sexton from the get-go. They have people mm-hmm. there who are, are high on him. And I think, yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, Utah liked him better in general, let alone at that number compared to RJ Barrett. Um, okay. That being said, like to me, Colin Larry, um, Abaji is 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 nowhere near you know the ultimate quality of a package that what New York could have ultimately given. You know, mm-hmm. Utah, I think, accepts that, believes that, etc. Um, mm-hmm. But you know. It just seems very clear. I mean, I, I think your reporting has said the same. Utah didn't re-engage the Knicks right. after that Monday deadline. If they could have, ha- if they if they had that opportunity, which they clearly did, to get a better package from New York and didn't take it, I mean, it has to suggest some animus there, right? And right. I wonder, from your conversations with Cleveland people, do you think when Kobe Altman called back up Justin Zanuck? And whenever it was Wednesday or Thursday, um, and try, and started to relitigate those conversations because my understanding was Cavs people 
you know, heading into that weekend, believed that they weren't getting him. Nick, the Knicks That's offer right. was what it was. And, yep. you know, good, pat ourselves on the back. Good try. Um, so when they re-engaged, you know, I think there was still some weariness that they were just going to ultimately be a pawn in Utah's game to get more out of New York. That's what New York people thought Utah was doing. Um, yeah. All that's to say, I mean, when do you think that the switch actually flipped and Cleveland people are like, okay, this is actually the ball's in our court now? When Utah accepted? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, until the very end, the Cavs always believed that the Knicks could have and should have beaten their offer. And every time that the Cavs had any kind of conversation with the Utah Jazz, whether it was going back to Summer League or going back to three weeks ago when they approached Utah and said, can you put something together that does not include Darius, Evan, or Jarrett that would make sense for us to actually go down this road? Every step of the way, the Cavs got the feeling from Utah that the Knicks offer was the one that they were waiting for, that the Knicks offer was the one that ultimately they wanted and ultimately they were going to accept. And the Cavs still believed until the very end that their offer was going to get topped by another team, probably the New York Knicks. But it just never happened. And I think the relationship that that the Cavs and the Jazz have together and the relationship between Kobe Altman and Justin Zanuck, the general manager for the Utah Jazz, I think that helped. The two organizations, Jake, have consummated multiple deals since Kobe and Justin have been decision makers. Um, And of the executives around the NBA, I would say that the guy that Kobe is closest to on a personal and professional level is Justin Zanuck. And I think that relationship really, really laid the foundation for the two sides agreeing to something and ultimately the Cavs having the quote unquote winning bid here. Yeah, there's been a ton. I mean, that's a huge factor as well. And, and the Jordan Clarkson trade, the Jay Crowder trade. Yep. Um, it was one of those deals when, when Derek Rose ended up heading back there and getting waiters is that a whole other deal as well, right? Like there's been Rodney so much. Hood. Synergy, yeah, there's been so much synergy between the two front offices. And that's something that, I mean, I, I try to kind of talk through my process and, and, and figuring yep. out some things on here a lot. I, I think that's just like a healthy exercise for listeners and like one thing i definitely always look at i think you do as well when you know trying to break down trades in in, you know in in the aftermath but also maybe try to Mm -hmm. forecast what's going to come you know like last week someone asked about what boston could do to replace you know danilo gallinari after his acl tear and they they definitely at least called Boston, or I mean, called Utah throughout the course of this offseason. Everyone's called Utah, right? Being that they're mm-hmm. having a fire sale, and yeah. let alone the Danny Ainge connection in the past history. That like those those data points are real, and these are people that we're covering as much as they are, um, you know, competitors, right? Um, and yes. having a familiarity, having a friendship. I mean, that's a real thing that juices a lot of – I mean, look what's happening in Philadelphia right now. The, yes. The, the Sixers are, are the Houston Rockets reincarnate, right right down to Montrezl Harrell being signed yesterday. I mean, Montrezl Harrell lasted this late into free agency for a variety of reasons, um, one of them being uh, an outstanding marijuana possession charge, which is, I mean, my, my personal opinion uh, – curious at best in the state of this country where 
legalization is that and decriminalization. That's a whole other thing. Um, but yeah. that's also something that, like, I mean, was hanging over a situation if he was going to have to, like, you know, have, I don't know, some type of repercussion for what happened to him. Plus the fact yep. that defense has fallen off a cliff over the years and um, you know, Washington wanted to offload him for uh, interpersonal reasons at last year's trade deadline. Like Philly comes in and gives him a two-year deal with a player option at, mm-hmm. at, at above the minimum. Like that, that is, you know, he played with James Harden. He, he yep. has you know spent time on multiple rosters uh, with key figures there like Doc Rivers and Daryl Morey. Like relationships obviously, obviously, obviously matter in this league. And yes. they play a huge factor um, in trade conversations when executives come up because, I mean, this is a high stakes, this is a high stakes move. Trading for Donovan Mitchell, trading Donovan Mitchell, what other side you're on, I mean, yeah. that's a big time move that can, that can kind of cement uh, whether or not in your owner's eyes and in your fans' eyes, which is a lot of the times how owners end up making your uh, their decision making, you know, listening to the fan base, kind of stamps yeah. you one way or another. And I and it, there's a lot of more comfortability taking that risk with someone that you've known and trust and um, believe that they're that they're operating uh, in good faith. To bring it back to what we were talking about at the very beginning. It is about trust. It is about relationships. And and think about this from this standpoint. Part of the reason why I think Kobe Altman has been elevated in the Cavs front office um, is because he has gained the trust of Dan Gilbert. They have 11 years together where Dan has seen Kobe work behind the scenes, seen how he's communicated behind the scenes and and stuff like that. Um, But but when it comes to, to anything in life, You have certain people that you trust. You have certain people that you talk to about different things. And you feel like if I talk to X person, that guy's going to give it to me straight. That guy's not going to BS me. I actually did a piece about a year and a half ago, sort of about this, Jake. And it was about the Cavs and their draft process. And if you looked at their history before this year, when they took a Baji with the 14th pick, Every single first round pick that the Cavs took, starting with Colin Sexton in 2018, this is in the post LeBron era, every single player that the Cavs took had Team USA ties. Hmm. Why? Because Kobe Altman got his start with Team USA. And some of the people that he trusts most when it comes to basketball, just natural basketball, break down this player for me. Tell me what you're seeing. Some of the people that he trusts most in this world are with Team USA. So he knows that what he hears from those people from Team USA, it's not going to be sugar-coated. It's not going to be fluff. It's going to be straight. It's going to be brutally honest. And they took Colin Sexton in part because their people from Team USA said, this is the kid that you need. He's a hard worker. He's a competitor. He's a scorer. He's going to help you change the culture. He's going to be the hardest worker, like all those different things. And then Darius Garland the year after that. And then Isaac Okoro the year after that. Then Evan Mobley the year after that. So oftentimes, even though these people are in high-ranking positions in an organization, they have people that they trust. And they're going to lean on them for advice in life and in advice when it comes to basketball and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so 
the Cavs make this big bid, it's the point where, I mean, I think it's absolutely worth it. I mean, Cleveland, mm-hmm. Cleveland has an uphill battle in terms of bringing an all-star talent and maintaining an all-star talent, right? I mean, it's why the, it's a large reason why the Cavs wouldn't put a player option there Darius Garland's fifth year um, and, and, and why they're not really, you know, jazzed up, let's say, by the idea of, uh, of giving a player option really to anybody. Um, they want I see what you control. did there. I see what you did there, Jake. You can't <laughs> slip that past me. They're not, you know, they're trying to keep people under team control as long as they can. And to yeah. get someone like Donovan Mitchell, who's still got three years left on his deal, um, while you still have Jared Allen locked up and Darius Garland to a new extension kicking in after this season, Evan Mobley's under team control. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic uh, uh, splurge because I, I really do think that, um, and I've said this in the past, I do think that executives' biggest failures can be the moves that they don't make um, because mm-hmm. sometimes, I mean, Utah ran it back and ran it back and ran it back, for example. Yes. I mean, they made a big deal to get Mike Conley, and that, that, that certainly up their ceiling a bit. Um, you know, if Phoenix if Phoenix doesn't go all in and get Chris Paul, you know they're not having the run that they're having. Um, right. If um, I don't know if Atlanta doesn't go get Dejounte Murray, like are they are people excited yeah. about the Hawks taking a step up? This even on that level, you know. Um, so it's 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 certainly. I mean, you, you clearly. I mean, my my, my producer Zach Nato texting me the Mavs trading up for Luca, like. Hell yeah, yep. they got a franchise cornerstone for two decades. Um, but right. I think in terms of more about paying multiple picks, and I mean, the fact that Charlotte hasn't gone and traded for Miles Turner after flirting with him for three years, and they're still kind of figuring out their center position, you know, that that's that, that's something that I think is an objective failure. Um, so for Cleveland to do that, I think is awesome. Um, but it also begs the question of like how of I mean, how long will, will everyone be sanctimonious there? And, and that's what right. people are looking at. But by all accounts so far, Donovan seems pretty thrilled. And, and Cleveland, I think, has been viewed around the league. Um, after this, we'll get to our first caller, Noah. Cleveland has been viewed around the league as, like, a more legitimate, sustainable winning situation than New York was altogether. Like, part of mm-hmm. why the Knicks were wanting to hold on to these picks was because they felt that they would have had to still do some work, whether it be offloading Julius Randle um, – and then you know going to you know go get and purchase somebody else, not to use those terms so bluntly, but that's what that's what it is. Um, and um, you know, Cleveland's got this core four now. Where you know the question of the show is, are, are are they contenders? Like I don't know if they necessarily are in that top tier, but they certainly got a fighting shot and, and have and have room to build off of this. So, I mean. How bullish do you think Cleveland people are, Chris, from your from your conversations that, that they can keep this thing going and building and adding to it? And this is just kind of the start. So I'm glad you brought up Atlanta, Jake, because I believe that the Cavs use the Hawks as somewhat of a cautionary tale. Like, look, I think the Cavs were fine if they were going to go into this season, running it back, adding Rubio, adding Neto, adding Abaji, and adding Robin Lopez. And, and hoping for internal improvement. But an opportunity to get somebody the caliber of Donovan Mitchell came about, and they had to capitalize on that. 
in part because of what Atlanta's front office people said this past year. All that they've been saying this past year before getting DeJounte Murray was like, we made a mistake by getting to the Eastern Conference Finals, getting fat on our success. I'm paraphrasing here. Getting fat on our success and running it back and thinking it was going to be the same. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I think, look, man, I think a, a, as they even got, not to interrupt you, but as they even got sure. to the Eastern Conference Finals, Hawks people were, before the series even started, Hawks people yeah. were telling their front office friends on the league, shit, man, we're going to have to pay up for this, aren't we? Like they were already ruining it. And they, and they didn't for the first year, right? And, and here the Hawks were in the play-in tournament after getting to the Eastern Conference Finals. So I think the Cavs saw that and they were like, you know, we don't want to strike too late. We don't want to hold off when an opportunity presents itself to get significantly better. If the price is right, if the guy fits our timeline, if the guy fits where we are contract wise and stuff like that. So they took the opposite approach that the Hawks did, or at least they did it one year earlier than the Hawks did it. And and I think that was in the back of their minds. And the thing that I keep hearing from Cavs people is, you know, they don't view this, Jake, as championship or bust, right? They're not in the situation like Brooklyn. They're not in the situation like Milwaukee. They feel like there's a window of contention here that has cracked open for the next, I don't know, three to five years or something along those lines. So the Cavs still don't want to set expectations too, too high where it's championship or bust. But look, if if they had to get to the playoffs through the play-in tournament, or if they got to the play-in tournament and got bounced out after acquiring somebody the caliber of Donovan Mitchell, of course, that's going to be a disappointing season. So they have earned the right to have higher expectations based on what they accomplished last year, what they have in place, and adding somebody like Donovan Mitchell. And I don't think, Jake, they're with Milwaukee or Boston. I feel like those two teams are on a different tier. But if we would have been having a conversation about the Cavs about three weeks ago, the conversation would have been about how close are the Cavs to Toronto, to Chicago, to Atlanta, and maybe even New York, right? Those teams that are fighting just to avoid the play-in tournament and get one of those final few spots in the Eastern Conference. Now I think it's fair and honest and realistic to say that the Cavs, the conversation with the Cavs is about how close are they to Philly? How close are they to uh, Miami? How close are they to maybe Brooklyn, depending on how you view Brooklyn and and what that mess could be? So they have changed the, the conversation about how high they can go in the Eastern Conference. And if you're doing tiers in the East, they're probably like on that 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 tier two slash tier three range. And that's a better place than they were before making this trade. And the difference is they feel like they can be on that tier and even go higher as this team continues to grow together because of their age and because of the contract situation that they all have. There you go. All right. Our first caller. If anyone else wants to join the queue, please do. Uh, you need to have an account to do so. And if you haven't, we'd love for you to download, subscribe to the show, follow the show, get updates whenever we're going live. And then you can call in and talk to myself and great grass like Chris Fiedler. Um, Noah, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Can't complain, man. What's going on? 
Well, I know this is kind of out of left field, but this morning the Pistons beat writer had put out an article addressing something I'd been wondering about, which was why Kemba Walker's still in Detroit and hasn't been bought out yet. Uh, he mentioned that they had maybe already agreed on a price a while back, but he says that it's Kemba's camp that is um, hesitating here because he's saying that they might not think that they have a suitor out there. Is that where we're at with Kemba Walker? Have you heard anything on that? Because that would really surprise me. Well, was Kemba Walker a, a value? Was he was he a positive player for the New York Knicks last year? Nope. So, I mean, the only the only and I don't know everything, right? But the only team I've heard that's considered bringing back Kemba, and it's only been considered, has been the Charlotte Hornets. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's at best a third guard right now. He is a minimum, just like we talked about in the past with if Russ does get bought out, or if Russ does get traded and waived or bought out by a team, you know, he would become a minimum player. And it's really difficult to become more than a minimum player um, once you hit that threshold. That, that was something that Fabouche aired out publicly um, to ESPN. And look. Ask Andre uh, Drummond about that, Jake. Exactly. I mean, that was that was exactly what happened to Andre Drummond. And I think that was something that he was considering to go back to Charlotte. Like, he was considering signing a multi-year deal with New York and with Charlotte because they had casters at the time and he wanted, he instead wanted to have a minimum uh, opportunity with LA on, on a potential, you know, playoff contender and show his minutes while there were injuries there and he'd be the starting center and it didn't work out. Um, so I think with Kemba, I mean, a, it's, it's not just necessarily about teams having interest in him because there needs to be like at this stage of free agency, like there needs to be a marriage in team and player, not just on salary number, but on role. Like, yes, teams want to know that a player is going to come in and like accept that position. And you know, Kemba was by all accounts like a happy camper while everything happened in New York, where he basically got benched and barred from the rotation. And then you know, you saw he came back, he handled professionally, came back in and had a couple of good games. And like he dropped like a quadruple double on Christmas or something like that, right? Um, so I mean, he's just considered a constant professional. Anyone has ever spent any time with him at all, let alone just all around great guy. I mean, I spent some time with him in the off season a couple of years ago, watching his workout. And he was like one of the more gracious players I, I've come across. So that's not the issue there, but like he's Kemba Walker. Like the reason we even got this question mm-hmm. is because he's Kemba Walker, but he's just not Kemba Walker anymore. And I, I think that's kind of, I mean, he, he's arguably one of the worst defensive players in the league and he's just not the same caliber of playmaker and scorer anymore. I mean, Cleveland, for example, to bring this back to our conversation, you know, we talked about this last time you were on, Chris. Like, they didn't really have much interest in a sign and trade with Collins. Hello? Jake, you there? I lost yeah, you again. Yeah, that was so weird. Yeah, my app just closed out. That's never happened before. Okay. Um, sorry about that. You know, nope. we talked about Cleveland not having a ton of interest in Mike Conley, right? Like, they go in and they go out and, and bring back Ricky Rubio. 
Like, was Kemba yep. Walker really someone that, that Cleveland would have considered over those types of guys? Like, no. I don't think so. Yeah. I talked to multiple people, actually, about Kemba um, inside and outside the organization because I knew that the Cavs were hunting for a point guard this offseason. And I said, okay, like, what if Kemba gets bought out by Detroit? Like, is that somebody that's interested? Um, and and the the word that I continue to get about Kemba is that, one, like, the role that he was going to sign up for wasn't going to be all that appealing to him. And, two, that he just doesn't have the same kind of juice. He doesn't have the same kind of on-court ability. And, so, and I mean, like, of def- Sorry, you go. Yeah, so, I mean, like, if he's going to willingly take a buyout, like, is he willingly taking a buyout to be somebody's third point guard? That's hard to see for me anyway. Yeah, I mean, the injuries the injuries took their toll, and they played a factor um, in the Hornets letting him walk back in free agency in 2018. So, yeah. look, Isaiah Thomas bounced around the league on multiple 10 days and, and ended up latching on with Charlotte, and he, he could even still come back there. You know, who knows? Um, mm-hmm. He's – He's another name that the Hornets are definitely considering for that that third point guard position. Um, I mean, Kemba Walker's not done. Like he will get another chance. But in, in the pre or in the off season, and and now, you know now we're, we're we're pretty much in preseason mode, right? Where teams are are, are looking for kind of higher upside swings. I would yep. say, right? Like yeah. Norvell Pell still getting a two way opportunity after all these years. Um, in Portland now, or maybe he's not on a two-way, but he's, he's got a chance to become a two-way player. I, I don't remember that specifically. Um, you know, high upside, long athlete guys, younger dudes, players who... Younger dudes that they can get in their player development program and see if they can pull something out of them, yeah. Exactly. You know, you can bring them down to your G League team, maybe. You know, Kemba, I think, once we get... I mean, even if it, even if it does it might not take this long, but... Once we get to January or you know, even the trade deadline when, when, when rosters, you know, the numbers start to get uh, wonky again, like he will get an opportunity. He's just – he's that good of a veteran and he's that good um, uh, of a person, honestly, that mm-hmm. I think someone will, will give him a shot. But for right now, when no one needs like a league, you know – average type, like, like a wins above replacement type player like no one really is trying to go out and sign a, a replacement level player right now like that, that that unfortunately is the honest truth of where Kemba stands uh, I, don't, I don't think his chance is going to be necessarily uh, in this stage of the league calendar but but later on in the year when, when injuries happen and all of a sudden someone really needs a backup point guard you know Kemba Walker mm-hmm. will be will be at the top of, uh, of people's list on who to call yeah yeah. Um, all right, Chris. Anything else I should have asked you? Anything else you want to talk about with, with Donovan <laughs> and Cleveland? Anything you want to ask me before I, I uh, yeah. let you get out of here? Yeah, there's something that I want to ask you because there is a lingering thing when it comes to the Cavs after trading for Donovan Mitchell that I think also ties into how you view them um, this upcoming season and maybe next season. They have a big hole, Jake, at small forward now. Mm-hmm. And I, I know not everybody was on board with the Lowry Markinen playing the small forward experiment and the tall ball experiment that the Cavs were trying. And that's fair to have your questions about that. 
but he was their starting small forward last year, and he was penciled in to be their starting small forward again this year. So of the guys that the Cavs already had on the roster, Markkanen was the best option that they had. And now that option doesn't exist anymore. Now that style that they played last year doesn't exist anymore. So I'm curious what you think they can do, if anything, about addressing the small forward spot, either in free agency with the open roster spot that they have right now or via trade. They don't have a lot to trade anymore, but some kind of package with multiple second rounders and one of their um they're, they're, they're pieces that are just outside the rotation, like Jetty Osman or Dylan Windler or somebody like that. Like, can they do anything to fix this small forward spot that they have right now? Well, I haven't had a chance really to ask people about it. So okay. I, I, about this point, of, this point I'm about to say, I, I'd be curious how deep, maybe, you know, how deep Cleveland and Utah really discussed, you know, Bogdanovich and Jordan yeah. Clarkson and, and other players on, on Utah's roster. Because I was, when, you know, it got first reported that Cleveland was the team and we were waiting to find out what the official package was. Right. Um, I was kind of surprised that there was no other piece going back uh, to Cleveland. Because um, that would have also given us, you know, a little tell on on where the Cavs valued the rest of that roster, right? They, they right. kind of basically would have had their picking of anybody. Um, you know, that maybe they didn't like anyone. Maybe they never found any terms there. Who knows? Uh, maybe, you know, you can answer that when I'm done talking. Okay. So to my knowledge, they didn't love Bogdanovich's contract. Uh, he's making 19.5 this year. And initially when there were like conversations about Colin Sexton and a sign and trade with Utah being interested in Colin Sexton, I immediately, just based on the numbers, went to Bogdanovich. Based on the numbers and based on the shooting and the floor spacing and the small forward spot that Bogdanovich would have helped fill. Um, but but I was told when having any kind of conversation with Utah and Colin Sexton and Bogdanovich involving a sign and trade that the Cavs balked at that because that would have put them into the luxury tax. They're about $2.5 million away from the luxury tax right now after this Donovan Mitchell trade. And if it would have been Colin Sexton, Bogdanovich, that kind of framework of a deal, that Bogdanovich would have put them in the tax, and they weren't about to do that. Man, I apologize to our listener. We're definitely having some, some glitchy stuff here. I I didn't get half your answer there, Chris. Um, <laughs> can, you, can you repeat that? So, yeah, I, I don't know where you cut off or anything along those lines, but – when when it was initially like Colin Sexton interest of the Utah Jazz and there was potential for the Cavs to consider sign in trades with Colin Sexton and Utah, like my mind initially went to Bogdanovich. Yeah. Because the Cavs had a need at small forward, uh, because they needed more shooting, and because the salary I thought would have aligned pretty well based on what Colin was probably going to get from Utah. Um, but the two things that I kept hearing from the Cavs people that I talked to, they didn't love Bogdanovich's number, 19.5 expiring contract. And if the framework just would have been smaller with Colin Sexton involved and Bogdanovich, that would have put the Cavs into the tax. They're about 2.5 million away from the tax right now after the Mitchell trade. But before the Mitchell trade, 
the framework of a deal involving Sexton and Bogdanovich would have put the Cavs into the tax, and they weren't going to do that for somebody like Bogdanovich. Yeah, I mean, you could get wonky with the starting. You like, could. You could put Kevin Love at the three and have Evan Mobley <laughs> guard guard wings. Like you could keep going your big three stuff. Um, sure. You could bring out you could bring out Dean Wade. But yes. Yeah, I I I would I would go with Acora. I'm Acora. Yeah, Acora. I'm, I'm watching okay. France uh, Slovenia, and I I almost thought I confused him with Elliot Kobo. Um, yeah, I would try Acora. Um, and and see if that fits your timeline, and and if he's can take a leap yeah. in in year three, it would be right. Um, yep. I think I don't know that 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 would be where I, I would. I mean, it's the least cost effective while also being a potentially really high ceiling result. Um, yeah. So that that that's where I would what I would go to start before I because I do like the philosophy that. Dale Morey and, and the Houston Rockets tree guys always think of think like that. You know, the roster isn't finalized until the trade deadline. Even after that, you've got the buyout yeah. market, you've got room to improve. So why why, you know, use your chips on Kyrus Levert when, you know, you never know if a, a different situation could come down the pipeline, right? Like the, like I, I wasn't necessarily convinced that Karis was the guy to go and get at the trade deadline, right? Um so yeah. You know, why go make another trade right now when, when you have potentially two good options already in the fold um, that you have history with, that you've experienced, that, that you intimately know, and see how they work out? I think Okoro, if I had to label it right now, is, is the front runner, probably the front runner. But I know that there are people that are intrigued by the possibility of Karis Levert going into a defensive stopper role surrounding Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland. Then again, like that's a lot of shot creation. There's only one ball. Darius and Donovan are going to occupy most of the offensive possessions. So is there room enough for Karras in that five-man grouping? Or would it be better for the Cavs to put Karras in a six-man role where he can have a lot of freedom, he can play make, he can score? That kind of role seems like it would suit Karras better. But like I said, I know there are people that are kicking around the idea of Karras at small forward. How available is Jake Crowder? He seems very available. Um, I don't know necessarily what the cost is, but he has definitely been a name out there throughout this offseason. Yeah, and, you know, we talked about past history. Clearly, yeah. I think Cleveland, you know, thought, thought very highly of at the time. Yeah. What a fit he would be. It's just like that three and D type who doesn't need the ball in his hands to be effective winning player. Like if you think about what Utah had building, um, you know, Royce O'Neal, that type of role next to somebody like Donovan Mitchell. I think that would be a really interesting target for the Cavs, Jay Crowder. Another one that I've kicked around internally, and I think we've talked about this on the show before, Jake, is Harrison Barnes. I think he would fit perfectly on this kind of team right now. I lost it again, Chris. Are you back? Yeah, last thing I heard you say was Harrison Barnes. Yeah, I think he would fit perfectly on this kind of team with this makeup at this point in time. But I don't know what the cost would be, and I don't know if the Cavs would be willing to pay that cost or how available he is from Sacramento. Yeah, I mean the Cavs. I mean 
the Cavs. The Kings have certainly talked about Harrison Barnes for the last two years. I, I really thought he was going to get moved at the dead at, at the draft, um, mm-hmm. with 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 the knowledge that they were likely taking Keegan Murray. Um, you know, I, th- I think. Chris, we're gonna Jake, end the show. We're gonna end the show, man. Uh, <laughs> what is going on? I don't know, man. It is what it is. But I appreciate you taking the time. Sure. I appreciate everyone listening. Uh, if you haven't, go follow Chris Fedor and read all of his work. He'll be a very, very, very uh, you know must read beat reporter throughout this this Donald Mitchell tenure. So, anything specific you want to plug before you go, man? No, just check out all my stuff, cleveland.com slash Cavs. One place, nice and easy. Tuning in and doing, uh, rocking with us throughout these difficulties today. Um, Should be back up and running smoothly. Uh, On Friday, I will have uh, Damon Rangula to talk Lakers. And I'm going to make some calls on Thursday and really kind of get some new info on what's going on with Russell Westbrook's trade situation um, and everything in L.A. So thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks to Chris. Sorry again for the difficulties and the issues, but we'll be back good and improved on Friday at 2 Eastern. See you then.